From the studios of Advancing Vibrant Communities in Modesto, California, this is Lighthouse Live Radio on the Lighthouse Live International Podcasting Network. Welcome to Lighthouse Live, the radio voice of advancing vibrant communities. Our mission is to motivate believers to move out from the four walls of the church to personally serve the needs of their neighborhoods. Get ready for a no-holds-barred, honest look at the Christian lifestyle the way Christ commanded it to be. All that and more coming right up here on Lighthouse Live. And good evening to you, wherever you may be. Pastor Mike Douglas here. Welcome to Lighthouse Live. Great to have you with us, along with our producer and co-host, Elaine Harlan, and our prayer intercessor, the inimitable Mr. Owl, with us as well, Elaine. And, you know, isn't August is kind of a weird month, isn't it? How weird is it? Well, (laughs) let me tell you how. August to me is like the lost month of the summer. Yeah. You know, I, you know, August kind of is, it's something, you know, it's going to be hot and mm-hmm. I kind of look for August to go away, you know, because September school is starting and it's just one of those weird months. The to months me. are and all going just, by so quickly. They are, aren't they are they? going yes. by quickly. Yes. Again, welcome to you and, um, welcome to those new listeners mm-hmm. joining us in Paris, France. Yes. Great to see you Ooh. up there. A couple more, uh, joining us in Canada, uh, Israel, all over the world. Indeed. Great to have you, uh, great to have you with us. And before we get started though, by the way, wonderful program tonight. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if, um, You've been around a little bit, uh, and you've had family members that have uh, graduated to heaven. You may have well uh, used one of the great assets of our community, one of the great blessings of our community, and it's Community Hospice. And uh, tonight their CEO, Harold Peterson, is with us. And we're going to be talking about the roots of hospice and and uh, uh, how it uh, does what it does so incredibly well. And I, I tell you, we, uh, we just... Love you guys over there and, and get such great feedback and uh, both uh, on a personal level, we appreciate you and also on a professional level in, in ministry as well. But we'll get to that in just a few moments. Right now, let's check in with Voice of the Martyrs. Hey, what's up? This is Toby Mack with news of another real-life Jesus freak. It's 1997. Gao Fing, a 30-year-old worker at the Chrysler plant in Beijing, collects signatures to properly register a Protestant church with the communist government. But authorities not only refuse, they arrest Gao. He endures hard labor and brainwashing. When they take his Bible, Gao begins a hunger strike to get it back. Handcuffed to a chair, They place a bowl of food in front of him and shock him with the cattle prize, screaming at him, Eat! His spirit is not broken. And at his release, Gao says, I would prefer to be in prison for two years than to do nothing for God. Get a global perspective from the Voice of the Martyrs. Go online to persecution.com. And back with you here on Lighthouse Live. You know, I I love watching the Olympics. Mm. I just... Yeah, and you can always tell those of us who are watching in the Olympics because we're bleary-eyed in the morning. You know? <laughs> we're all stay, staying up till you know zero dark thirty. I'm just wondering what's our excuse when the Olympics. Are yeah, <laughs> <laughs> well, the Olympics are I'm a convenient sorry. excuse. 
But, you know, and, and, and for all the wonderful things that, that China has done mm-hmm. to uh, host this, you know, we still need to remember that the, the warfare is raging, and incidents like this that we just heard uh, from Voice of the Martyrs are still occurring today. And uh, so we, we keep our brothers and sisters in the Lord in, in prayer in those areas. Uh, we had the opportunity to visit some missionary friends in Hong Kong a few years ago and, and uh, went into uh, uh, some of the back parts of China that you wouldn't normally know to go to, some of the farming areas. It's very interesting. Uh, you know, as you enter the, and it's not hardly even a village, but as you enter there, you know, there's, there's a board and it has everybody's name on it, and it tells them when they can have their one child, mm. you know, and, and what what year and, and what month is scheduled for, you know, and wow. uh, you know, we, and and my wife is a nurse practitioner, so she was interested in the medical stuff. We went into a dentist's office, and uh, they were very proud to show us all their wares there, and, and I mean, you know, the the picks had rust on them. I mean, it was. Yeah. Just absolutely incredible. So uh, any, anyway, there's, we just need to bear in mind that there's another uh, side of, of what's going on in that uh, country and uh, all the more reason uh, to pray for our brothers and sisters who have been called to, uh, to minister there. Well, well, let's move stateside now to Brad Dacus and the Pacific Justice Institute. It's time for The Legal Edge, a look at your rights as a Christian, a parent, and a citizen. And now with a look at what's happening on the legal front, the president of the Pacific Justice Institute, Brad Dacus. In a truly miraculous change of opinion, the Second District Court of Appeal in California has reversed its previous decision banning homeschooling in the state. Now, after ruling homeschooling illegal in February, the court agreed to rehear the case in June. On August 8th, the court agreed with most of the arguments advanced by Pacific Justice Institute in the briefing and at oral argument and deferred to the state legislature, which has allowed homeschooling to flourish with few restrictions. The tens of thousands of homeschooling families in California and throughout the nation can be thankful for the prayerful support which protected the rights of families to educate their children at home. I'm Brad Dacus. To find out more about The Legal Edge, call 916-857-6900 or log on at pacificjustice.org. You know, I'm going to show a little bias here, but <laughs> I think any time that one of the appellate courts in the state makes a good decision, it's it's cause for prayer. <laughs> it's really got cause for praise. By the way, Brad Dacus and his team were out here uh, last Wednesday yes. for an incredible seminar on uh, what uh, nonprofits and churches need to do today to protect themselves legally. It's not like it was, you know, 50, 60 years ago, uh, or even really 10, 15 years ago. And uh, we just thank Brad so much for taking his time to come down here pro bono and uh, and uh, tell us what's happening. And uh, so anyway, our, our thanks to the Pacific Justice Institute. Just a reminder that you can contact them at pacificjustice.org or one triple eight three zero five nine one two nine. Time to take a look at the Volunteer Center of the United Way. Check out the Linda Hand list. The Center for Human Services is uh, having their 22nd annual edible extravaganza. It's the Central Valley's most anticipated food and beverage show. 
and it's going to be held on Thursday, September 4th. You might want to mark your calendar for this. 5 to 9 at the Modesto Center Plaza features tastings of the region's finest restaurants, caterers, bankers. Bankers? Did I say bankers? Bankers. Bankers. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, A little slip there. Confectioners uh, and local growers, live entertainment all under one roof. Volunteers, ages 21 years and older, needed to help out and set up and clean up. Uh, greet volunteer to do quality control. Uh, you know, I, I might do that as Kinda well. Kind of like Nehemiah, you yeah, know, there you go. cup bearer to they, the king. They, and I think they need people taste like that. stuff Part of the volunteering Just to make sure it's okay. Yeah, that'd be all right. <laughs> Hand out plates, clear tables, and uh, maybe sample some of the goodies as well. <laughs> uh, volunteers to auction door prizes, monitor uh, parking attendance, and uh, that kind of thing. Uh, tickets are available to the public. All proceeds support the center youth uh, and family programs that they have going on there. A series partnership for healthy children, and ABC gets lots of referrals uh, from them. Uh, the 11th annual Family Resource Fun Fest going to be celebrated on Saturday, September 20th, from 11 till 3 at Whitmore Park and Series. This free event for all ages is packed with fun games, activities, prizes food, family resources, and community information. Uh, Volunteers uh, step up to the plate needed to assist with setup, cleanup, decorations, balloons, refreshment stands, games, bounce house, uh, face painting, and lots more. Uh, Flexible shifts are available for volunteers between 8 and 4 for volunteers ages 13 and up. A series partnership for healthy children promoting family unity, uh, healthy choices in proper parenting techniques, and providing real help families in need. You've been in one of those bounce houses lately? I have. Well, not Aren't lately. It's been a while, but they are fun. They yeah. are fun. Have yeah, we th- Well, we threw a birthday party a couple years ago for my son and, and put together some money, and a friend of ours had one and, and, and brought Ooh. it. And, you know, it's funny. You kick all the kids out and go in there and <laughs> have great fun. It is yeah, it's no really, broken uh, bones or anything. It's no, we were trying to go somewhere with yeah, this. We I, might try okay. to, to do that. Right. Uh, Stanislaw County Library, where you can bring access to the world through books to homebound individuals in the home delivery program. This is not like a pizza delivery, but this is this is really cool. Volunteers are needed to select, check out, deliver, and return library mater- materials for home borrowers. Uh, volunteers should have an interest in books and reading, relate well with older and infirm individuals, uh, able to carry book bags up to 15 pounds. You must Do you remember what librarians looked like when, when we were kids? What did they look uh, like? You know, I mean, Please they tell. Were, Do tell. They were these... <laughs> These ominous, skinny-looking women, you know, with glasses that came down like this. Down on their nose. Yeah, and they looked like, you know, the, the Mister. The, they could freeze you with a look. And the last thing you wanted as <laughs> probably a kid. Probably with a kid like you, was, they probably yeah, needed to. Well, <laughs> absolutely. You walk in with an overdue book, and it's like, you know, you're... Yeah, the quietness of the library, and every step you take echoes, you know, and you get closer, and here's this ominous figure. You know. How many but overdue it, books did you have? Well, as a kid? you know, not not too many, but the ones that I did have were traumatic, you know. <laughs> Probably so still I, overdue they, at this minute, right? I, yeah, that was a long time ago, too. That's a long time ago. That's got to be an ominous find we, by we now. We need volunteers. But librarians are different now. You know, you've noticed that? Uh, They're. They're not as intimidating, I don't, I don't think. <laughs> we need volunteers to deliver books to people who are... <laughs> 
homebound. 50 years overdue on their book. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, if you're interested in delivering books to people who are homebound, we uh, invite you to call Barbara Borba if you have questions. She has answers, and she can be reached at 209-524-1307. Next time Jim Hinman comes in, he's going to help me with the trauma from the librarian. To that librarian right now. It wasn't like marrying the librarian (laughs) and the music man. You know, there you have this sweet lady. The library is I was at. Mean women there. Al, would you get Jim Hinman on the phone, please, during this next break? Anyway, 209-524-1307, extension 113. Or you can email her at bborba at uwaystand.org. And here uh, on the ABC front, we currently have a kidney dialysis patient uh, who needs rides to those life-saving treatments. Please give uh, me a call here if you can provide some transportation. We're at 544-9571. Our good friends at YWAM, that's Youth with a Mission Modesto, Presenting a concert, Sweet Deliverance. I hear these guys are sweet. It's a reunion concert, Mm. September 28th, 7 p.m. at Shelter Cove, 4242 Coffee Road in Modesto. This is a free charity event, and a love offering will be taken. All proceeds go to support the work of Youth with a Mission. They do a fantastic... Acapella. And you would swear that they have some kind of percussion going, but they are are just absolutely incredible. If you get a chance, go check this out. YWAM Mm. Modesto seeks to live the gospel on behalf of the poor, the homeless, and the forgotten of our city and the world, and they do. For more information, visit ywamadesto.org or call them at 209-545-0750. That'd be a fantastic time. Well, we are extremely blessed this week as we welcome to Lighthouse Live the CEO of Stanislaw Community Hospice, Harold Peterson, and we are so thankful, too, that you could squeeze us in your busy <laughs> schedule. Harold, thank you thank so you much. Thank you for having me. Oh, my goodness. Time is growing short for you. Can we say that? Sure. Okay. <laughs> we mean at hospice. At hospice, yes. <laughs> I guess I we better clarify. automatically turn into a patient when I retire, right? <laughs> and hanging around this guy too long. <laughs> Harold, hospice in this area is very special, and I'm sure that people elsewhere think their hospice Absolutely. is special, but it is special here. Tell us how you got connected. How long have you been with hospice here? And, and just share with our listeners, uh, because we are global. Uh, tell us how special it is. Well, Community Hospice was formed about 30 years ago. We're starting our 30th year, uh, you know, in 2009. We uh, were formed by a couple of volunteers, uh, two nurses mm. that had a vision, mm. had uh, kind of taken the idea from what was going on in England, which is where hospice began. Its, its roots go back to the hostels and, and taking care of people when they're sick. And uh, so in 1979, uh, they began our hospice here in, in, uh, in Modesto, and, and uh, it was an all-volunteer effort for from 1979 until 1992. Wow. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they had really no regulations, no government funding, no anything. And, and uh, it was actually through the generosity of a couple of families. Uh, actually, it was uh, Julio and Eileen Gallo that, that uh, got them over some rough spots in the early days when... Uh, you know, they had a little bit of payroll that they had to uh, to have, and, and uh, you know, they, they took generous donations to, to keep them alive. In 1992, um, Medicare began certifying hospices as, as a, uh, what they consider conditions of participation in a Medicare program. And um, our board deliberated hard on, on the issue. As a matter of fact, uh, 
And I think one of your board, board members, John Grover, was one yeah. of the people at the day that was uh, it was on our board and, and having to deliberate whether we were going to become Medicare certified or not or whether that would restrict us too much with, with the loving care that we were providing a lot of our patients at the time and, and uh, whether that would change the mission of, of the organization. And the wisdom prevailed, and, and they had opted to do the Medicare certification. I came three years later in 1995 um, when they had gone through a management change, and, and uh, I had also gone through a management change. I'd spent 24 years at Tri-Valley Growers before mm -hmm. that and mm -hmm. had no idea even what hospice was, mm -hmm. to be honest with you, at the time. And, and a friend of mine asked me to come over and help out for an interim period of time. And, and uh, there's a few things that I remember uh, very directly was, was uh, that, that lured me to, to the, the, the work. I went into the bereavement room the very first time and uh, met the staff and uh, was immediately sitting across the couch from uh, three of the staff members and there were little, little baby's feet mm. up on the wall, mm. little footprints. And of course, curiosity, you know, gets you what, you know, what are they? Well, they were, they were the, the, the baby's feet of children who had passed away, not in our care necessarily, but had been part of our bereavement program mm. for the, the pregnancy and infant loss program. And it was a real uh, way of helping healing, you know, go on for these mothers and fathers who'd lost uh, children. And actually there was a very high divorce rate as a result of losing a child and mm. that without any kind of intervention and help. So that was kind of uh, overwhelming, to be perfectly honest with you. When I first looked at it, it was, you know, what am I doing here? Sure. And then at the same time, there was a picture of a woman who I had known very well. It was a, uh, a picture of a wife of a guy that I'd worked with at Tri-Valley for all 24 years I was there. And mm. She was a very young woman and passed away at age 35 or 36 and um, of a lung disease. And it was almost as though... Uh, God was telling me to come. Hmm. So I uh, accepted the part-time um, management responsibility for uh, for the organization. Worked a couple twenty-hour uh, weeks, and and uh, uh, a little later, they they basically said, "Why don't you apply for the job?" And it was quite a bit of difference in my previous salary and what I was making before and what salary, what, what salary hospice could afford. You probably can recognize that. Been there, yes. done that. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, but I think the board stretched, and, and certainly so did I, and, and uh, I've never looked back. It's been a wonderful 13 years since then that I've, that I've been blessed to have been in hospice. Um, I had n zero health care experience, though, mm. and thank goodness for a lot of uh, uh, great, uh, clinical people that did understand what what hospice was, I had to do a quick study on on the Medicare conditions of participation and some of the other you know things that that needed to be known for you know to be an administrator. But uh, you know they weren't weren't that difficult to learn. And and uh, after that it became part of a heart mission as opposed to a there uh, you go uh, <laughs> yeah as opposed to just a job. Harold, what what uh, how did God use your your experience at Tri Valley? To prepare you for uh, hospice, what 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 were the you know direct transferable skills that you were able to bring there? You know, I I think um, it was 24 years of business management that I had was learning. Didn't know I was learning probably, yeah. but I, I did spend the last eight years there as a senior vice president of logistics and distribution, and and uh, certainly understood the business part of of Tri Valley and and what it did and and. Uh, uh, 
you know, a lot of negotiating skills with railroads and other things that, that uh, you know, for, for some of the jobs that we had to do with a lot of warehousing space, construction. I have now built more buildings at hospice than I ever imagined they would. <laughs> uh, you know, we, we built a lot of warehouse space at the Tri-Valley over the years I was there and, sure. and uh, working with the contractors. You know, certainly people management. You know, what kind of, you know, people management yes. skills are transferable anywhere you go. And, and uh, I will have to admit there's quite a difference between a warehouseman and a truck driver and a nurse and a physician. <laughs> what a contrast, huh? Yeah, quite a contrast. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but in the end, you know, we're all people and, and uh, you know, need to be recognized for what we do. And, and uh, it was also interesting. The one thing that, that we just finished doing at, at Community Hospice is, is converting our paper system into a, a non-paper system. Mm -hmm. We are laptops with everybody on staff now. Mm -hmm. All of our care is documented in the field, uh, most of the time in the home of patients, so that when our night nurse comes on after the day nurse leaves, there's a full record of what transpired during that day. So there's visibility into our medical records 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So our weekend nurses also know what's transpired throughout the week. So there's no loss of, of, of continuity of care. I'm not having as a night nurse to step in and, and start all over again. And that was interesting because uh, before I left Tri-Valley, we were in the midst of trying to, to computerize our whole inventory management system and trying to get, and we realized in both cases, one, I had two-thirds of my workforce at Tri-Valley that was functionally illiterate and could not read. So you hand a, a computer terminal in front of somebody like that, and they were panic-stricken. Sure. Wow. When we got to our, our nurses at hospice, you know, certainly they were all well-educated well people, but uh, quite frankly, a lot of them had never really, uh, you know, taken the time to learn the computer. So we had some basic learning and computer skills that we had to go back to. And, you know, I used actually one of my old friends from Tri-Valley who was at Modesto Junior College to help me come over, and, and uh, we conducted training classes for our nurses. And, and uh, we have a great staff that, that took to the, you know, computers uh, very well. And, and within a six-month period of time, we've transitioned from paper to not paper. So those are the things that really I think I can draw parallels to that uh, – between the two, but otherwise, uh, that's probably where it all ends because healthcare is completely different than anything I've ever done. And you are such <clears throat> a people person, and <laughs> well. we were we were talking a little bit before uh, the program, Harold. And end of life issues. Uh, unfortunately, people come to you a lot of times when this becomes a personal issue. I was sharing with you my own personal thing. I, I, I wasn't familiar with hospice until it became a family issue as was with when my mother uh, was at the end of her life. And so I became uh, aware of hospice and, and up close and personal, but I will always be grateful for the fine staff and people at hospice. And, and community hospice here is just second to none, in yeah. my opinion. Mm, thank you. And uh, I just, just uh, appreciated the help, and uh, they're coming alongside my family at that particular time. Uh, we needed them. and But, you know, it, it, unfortunately, when it strikes home is when people come to you and, and you are there for them and you are able to teach them the things that they need to learn at that particular time and, and address that maybe. Uh, you know, there's probably a lot of myths about what hospice is, and maybe I can address some of those. Uh, first of all, um, cancer only. Hmm. You know, for many of our years, you know, it was dedicated to a cancer patient and only a cancer patient. 
Once again, Medicare changed all that, not just for the Medicare recipients, but for all the patients we care for. So we have criteria now that if you have a, a, a terminal illness, uh, your life expectancy is six months or less to live given the normal progression of that disease. Uh, you have a physician that will sign that the fact that those two things are facts and you're willing to accept our services. You know, that's the criteria for being a hospice patient. That doesn't mean that in six months and one day you're sent on your way because we've had patients for years. Um, most of the time the criteria is just that we're, we're managing the, the, the patient in such a way that we see this long, slow decline. And for some diseases it is long and slow. For other diseases it's quick. Um, we aren't the traditional medical um, service in that it is physician only in many cases. You go to your doctor, your doctor gives a, a, a prescription, and you go home and, and you take the prescription and everything's fine. We have four physicians that work for us, um, uh, two of them full-time and the other two, uh, you know, part-time, just for hospice. Uh, so certainly we have the medical component. Our nursing component is, is the case management. They're the ones that are seeing the patients every other day, every week, depending on their needs, and, and certainly managing those kinds of issues that are, that are going on with the patient from a, from a health care standpoint. But we also have social workers, mm -hmm. master's degree social workers. And the first time I came to hospice, I thought, what in the world are these people? I thought those people worked over at the, at the, at the county welfare <laughs> department because mm -hmm. social workers here. Until I had my own personal hospice experience, and it was, a ho it was a hospice social worker that was having my family sit around the table and talk about what my father-in-law wanted exactly. as a funeral. Yes, yeah. yes. And it was shocking because no one else in the family could ask those questions. Right. It took an outsider with the skills and talents mm -hmm. to be able to ask us as a family, what about this? Mm -hmm. And, you know, he got answers out of us that, that none of the rest of us were prepared for. It's a home health aid. We have some incredible home health aides that do personal care, um, you know, from bathing to showering to, yes. to basically just, yes. uh, you know, uh, taking care of somebody that, that sometimes it's either uncomfortable or that the caregiver is not capable. Mm. And we have a lot of 85-year-olds taking care of 85-year-olds out there, and, uh, you know, they crash and burn, mm -hmm. you know, sooner than, than someone who might be younger. Definitely. Um, our chaplains. We mm. have one, four wonderful chaplains, mm. and while we're not a – technically religious organization or you know are we a church you know we have spirituality that we, we're dealing with every day with with our patients and it's it's not surprising i guess some you know come to their spirituality a little quicker when they realize that the end is coming mm. um but we have some wonderful chaplains that, that, that uh, you know, minister to the needs of our, of our uh, population. And they're as diverse as, as you might expect uh, any, any can be, from, you know, culturally diverse to male-female. Uh, but do a wonderful job administering to it. And if we need to connect somebody back with their, their pastor, their priest, their rabbi, their monk, we'll do that. And because uh, it's really about their spirituality. Uh, yeah, obviously... We don't pass a chance to help them out another way if they need it, too. Charlie Crane being one of those wonderful, mm. wonderful yes. men of God that uh, that is associated with you, Harold. He's a great singer, too, and he'd be Yeah, he, you know, he's just... <laughs> he's yeah, awesome. He, he is absolutely uh, incredible, and, you know, if... If he were in a different denomination, uh, we, we'd nominate him for Pope. I mean, you know, 
In fact, we, 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 many, many, many years, we, we kind of kidded him and called him the bishop. Uh, because really to, to those of us pastors, right. he's kind of our godfather, mm. you know, in town. A lot of lessons learned from well, him. Well, I'm in, the, and, in so. the process of reading his book right now. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I have a few roots there because when I first came back to Modesto, uh, Reverend Yeager was my pastor oh, back. Oh, sure. Yeah. Too many years ago. And, uh, so, you know, we have some, some roots that, that kind of go along the same path. But Charlie is, is uh, at our hospice house, which is something yes. else I probably need mm-hmm. to talk about because yeah. we are mm-hmm. one of the unique organizations in the country, you know, let alone the state of California. We have a 16-bed hospice house uh, that was built by and, and for us especially just for that purpose. Uh, John and June Rogers, you know, have basically funded the entire operation and, and – uh, and at the same time, they were building Samaritan Village in Houston, uh, you know, in exchange for me coming out and helping manage their uh, their construction as well as their startup, as well as their operation. You know, they gifted us the hospice house. Mm-hmm. Um, 16 beds. Why 16 beds? And if you look around the state of California, there's only one other hospice house that's larger than ours, and that's in, uh, in San Diego, and they have really? 20, 24 beds. Wow. Everybody else is at, at 6 and maybe 12. Hmm. And uh, we did the survey back eight years ago about that, and, and uh, we're a little scared to see what the numbers showed. And now, you know, we're wondering whether 16 beds is enough. Mm-hmm. And uh, with a patient census and on an average day of about 200 patients is what we, what we see on a daily basis. Um, you know, 16 might not be enough you know, for the future. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, typically the hospice house is there for pain and symptom out of control. Um, it's for end-of-life care, immediate end-of-life, eminent end-of-life, as well as respite care for someone who needs a five-day respite uh, to, to catch a breath and, and go back to being the caregiver. Um, we've, we've taken care of incarcerated patients that, mm-hmm. uh, that have come out of the jail system. We have several letters that have released them to our care. Uh, in one case, we had uh, a former chaplain's grandson who he had not spoken with in many years mm. that uh, mm. being at the hospice house brought reconciliation for the family. Wow. And that's something. Wow. You see wow. God work every day. You know, and I, awesome. I would say, Harold, I mean, like, like Elaine, uh, our, our family had personal experience mm. uh, just about a year ago, a year, year and a couple months ago. Mm-hmm. And just uh, what, what a wonderful blessing. But also as, as a pastor being out there and, and doing you know, an average of one or two funerals a week. Um, a great percentage of those that that I, those families I work with, have had hospice involved, and you know, been doing this here in this area now about twelve years. I have never ever had anyone say, "Well, that was a bummer of an experience." Mm-hmm. To a family, there's only praise for what hospice does, and and the job you do, how you do it, how you're. Uh, your nurses, your home health aides, uh, every person that makes contact, how they just bless the family. And that is just an incredible, incredible resource in our community. And I think it's one of the hidden gems, you know, that in a city that people don't necessarily think about. And yet, boy, when, when the time comes, when, you know, you just have about had it and you're throwing up your hands, what do I do? And hospice comes in just very calm and, 
and 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 as you say you know with the ability to sit down with the family and say you know let's let's talk about these issues now that that maybe they you know hadn't uh, uh, for whatever reason been able to talk about but it's just an incredible incredible you resource. know it leads me to a point that you mentioned too though is i wish i i mean i obviously hear about every patient not just the ones you hear sure. and I can tell you there is a dramatic difference between the, the care that we're able to provide somebody in three days of our care or a week in our care versus six months in our care. Mm. You know, if you're in crisis mode and you have not come to grips with the fact that you're losing your dad or your mom or your loved one, right. and suddenly you have to face it by calling hospice, it's it's not a welcome sight a lot of times because you have family members that are in all different five sure. stages of death and dying. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, some are denial, mm-hmm. some are angry, some are still negotiating, some are, you know, some have already moved on because, hey, he's had it for such a long time. And we walk into that and try to make some sense and some normal, mm-hmm. you know, sense out of it. You do it in three days, and you're bound to have somebody not a, not happy with whatever you did while you were there. Right. One of the blessings of the hospice house has really been that we can take things there and, and manage it 24 hours a day, seven days a yeah. week. And so we're providing better care because of the hospice house for those short-term, you know, stays. But I would really speak to having call, calling us earlier than later, because uh, it is really something that needs to be done, and we can't do our best work when we're only there a short period of time. Absolutely. Well, in, in our case, it was three days, and a very, very positive experience. Mm. We're with Harold Peterson and Community Hospice as they come alongside individuals and families facing life-threatening illnesses, and the group Super Chick addresses some issues faced at such times in their song, We Live on Lighthouse Life. There's a cross on the side of the road where a mother lost a son. How could she know that the morning he left would be the last time she'd trade with him for a little more time? She could see she loved him one last time. And hold him tight. But with life, we never know when we're coming up to the end of the road. So what do we do then with tragedy around the bed? We live, we love, we forgive and never give up. Cause the days we are given are gifts from above. And today we remember to live and to love. And today we 
Super Chick on Lighthouse Live, We Live. It's a great song. We're back with you, Pastor Mike, Elaine, and Harold Peterson from Community Hospice. That's a great song. Every day is a gift, and uh, that's just a good reminder and how well people who are uh, living in those last days know that. And, Harold, I'm sure that you see this every day. And it, it, when people get down to those last days, they, uh, they truly come to grips with that as well as the family. And uh, you get to see all of that. And uh, those of us who are with those in their last days uh, uh, certainly uh, uh, see that in those last days with those family members. And you truly cherish those last moments together. And you you learn about uh, what enjoying uh, each day and living uh, each day as though it were truly uh, your last days. And uh, that's uh, that's one of those things that you, you learn about um, uh, spending the last uh, hours and days and months. I know when um, we were with my mom, we had one month. We learned of her. Uh, it was cancer in that situation, and we had one month to digest uh, all of that, the diagnosis and, uh, you know, spending the last uh, a month of her life. And so that was a tremendous education all of itself. So um, anyway, uh, life is a gift. You know, when you think about the education of what hospice does, I mean, obviously, we're there for the medical things and, and uh, you know, psychosocial things. One of the greatest gifts I remember as a hospice family member mm-hmm. was being educated as to what's going to happen next. Mm-hmm. Knowing that pain out of control looks like something. Knowing what those last breaths look like. The signs. And knowing, you know, anticipating what's going to happen. And, and believe me, you know, our nurses and social workers are absolutely the best Tremendous. at being able to, you know, we can't predict it to the, but... You know, they know pretty much what to look for. And being able to educate families, you know, uh, is something that causes them not to panic when those things happen. You know, when they start breathing a little heavily and they have, you know, signs of, of the last, you know, immediate thing is call 911. You know, we got to yeah. resuscitate. That's not what he wanted. They were the greatest. Right. They were help. They helped us to remain calm right. through the whole, the whole. Pain is the other thing that is such a crippling thing for a lot of people, not just the patient, obviously, but but for family. The worst thing I can ever think of is seeing a loved one of mine in pain, and how do I keep that from happening? And what happens when it does? And then you see the panic also, and you know, and and you know, our our physicians and our nurses are, are have been doing this for years. You know, and and I think that's uh, you look at seasons of medicine. Yeah. And we're in a season now where we're, we're sensitive to that, and you don't have to be in pain. It's not necessary no, with right. the technologies and the, and the medications that we have. You don't have to be in pain uh, during those times. And it's funny. I remember we talking about personal experiences, and this is probably one of the other things that, that drew me to hospice was my grandfather was, was my uh, mentor and, and um, somebody who gave me unconditional love, as, mm-hmm. as, you know, whereas my parents couldn't always do that because they were responsible for me. And I watched my grandfather pass away of, uh, of stomach cancer. Mm. And uh, pain management in 1971 yeah. was a hypodermic needle of yeah. some, you know, a narcotic in the morning, and I'll come back tomorrow and do it again. 
and usually for you know hours he'd be resting comfortably another hour a few hours he'd be okay and by the end of the day he was screaming again mm-hmm. and yes. i could not bring myself to go visit him mm-hmm. uh, yeah. because i couldn't stand to know what i was going to see when i got there sure. and, it, and it haunts me even now mm. you know 40 years later that that I, I couldn't do that but that's that was the other thing that that you know when you think about someone you love in pain that's a very crippling thing and it's very you know and it and it causes a lot of other reactions you know to family members which is one of the reasons why when you say you know not a bad word i've heard some bad words and it's usually <laughs> because of the family dynamics or something that we're unable to really mm. fix as fast as someone would like it to be fixed sure. yeah. and and those are very paralyzing things that 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 happen to people you know when they're dying and family members uh, process and deal with things differently. Absolutely. Talk about the support for the people after the loved one has passed on. Well, one of the things that we do, which is, I think, unique in, in, in our offerings, and it's because of our size, because of the community support that we've always had and, and, uh, and still will we'll always have, I think, you know, we're responsible for bereavement support and contact with those family members, whoever has identified themselves as a caregiver, we will be in contact with them for the next 13 months after the death of a, of a loved one. And that, that contact can be from leave me alone, I don't want to talk, to, to you know, come and we'll give you one-on-one counseling, to not just the caregiver, but we have support groups, as an example, for children. Mm. You know, our 5- to 13-year-olds that, that uh, we call our hug group. And, you know, I've always likened it to Sunday school with a twist, you know, the twist is is that we're we're helping you work your way through your anger as to why you lost grandpa or why you lost your brother, your sister. Mm-hmm. You know, because there's there's a different dimension that's, that's taking place in a child's mind over that kind of grief. They don't understand it, they don't know why. Mm-hmm. God must have done something to punish me. There's a lot of reasons why that they're they're grieving. The thirteen to eighteen year olds are different yet because most often, you know, they're closing up. They're not talking about it. They don't want to talk about it. And it could be their best friend they lost. It could be, you know, just even acquaintance, and they shut down as opposed to. So their mother usually drags them in, you know, by the nap of the neck and, and sit, sits them down in front of us and said, he's broken, fix him for us. <laughs> and, you know, we do what we can to release some of that, get them to talk about it. And you know, some of the ones I remember in the, in the past hearing about have been, you know, the the table light, the one we're sitting around now, and, and uh we put a bowl of ice cubes in the middle of the table, and the coordinator asks for, you know, so what is your name, Susie? What is your name, Billy? You know, and they don't want to talk. You know, tell me, tell me why you're here. And no one will talk, especially the guys. Get around, and finally one girl will say, well, I'm here because, and, and tell the story. And everybody kind of pushes back and says, oh, I, don't, I, don't, I, can't, I can't talk like that. Mm-hmm. Finally, somebody starts asking the question, well, what's the ice cubes for? Well, we're going to have an icebreaker. And they're inquisitive and curious. What does that mean? You know, well, you know what we've done in the past. Then we get them involved in something silly like that to the point where all of a sudden we say, "Okay, the icebreakers. We're going to take the ice cubes in the backyard. We're going to throw the ice up against the wall. That's the icebreaker." And you know they think it's pretty dumb. And you know, and but we got two kids to talk that night. Mm-hmm. And the next time you get two more. The next time yeah. you do, you know, things like that. You know, that, that releases their energy. That that. Uh, you know, we'll have them bring a pillow, and they can scream into the pillow, mm-hmm. whatever. So there's a lot of ways of working with children that is different than it would be for any of us as adults, and, and uh, you know, I think our staff does a wonderful job at doing that. 
You know, of course, then there's different kinds of grief, too, you know, suicide, homicide, you know, things that were never hospice patients. But still, what guilt comes with it, you know, God, why did you do this to me? A lot of things that, that really, uh, you know, people struggle with, you know. And then, of course, the, the you know, the regular hospice. Uh, you know, so we have support groups, 40, 50, 100 people, depending on time of the year and, and circumstance. We'll have support groups that they'll they'll be able to have a trained facilitator with them. To individual one-on-one -on -one counseling, we have uh, some some great people that that do one-on-one -on -one counseling for people that are just not able to cope. Now, for some of these groups, you, you don't necessarily have to have been through right. a hospice, right? I mean, you don't even have to be associated with. This is a, a community service right. that is available to two thirds. Two thirds right? of our pay people in support groups have never had a hospice experience. Mm. So, Harold, if we have someone listening right now who Absolutely. is interested in, in you know checking out one of these groups, how how might they do that? Call our number at uh, five seven eight sixty three hundred. Um, ask for the bereavement department. They'll okay. talk to Sue Garcia or or uh, one of our staff there. That's uh, uh, love to love to help whenever we can. We've been asked to go into schools before. Great. You know, if you remember a few years ago, Byer High School had kind of a run of suicides that, mm -hmm. that were just mm -hmm. disabling for a lot of people. And, mm -hmm. you know, we were there uh, leading a support group every, you know, every week for, uh, you know, the whole semester. Um, so, you know, it's kind of what the expertise that we've gained over the years of, of just, uh, you know, having uh, cared for. This year it will be about 1,200 hospice patients. Wow. Um, and like I said, we have an average daily census of about 200. We usually have between... 1,000 and 2,500 people in bereavement support in one form or another. And it's like I said, it's it's a friendly phone call. It's uh, checking in to see how you're doing. It's going to have the chaplain call you. And, you know, some of them feel bad because they lost touch with their nurse or their social worker or somebody that was kind of close to them, and so we'll re try to reconnect them. We have a lot of other events that take place during the year, too, like coming up at Christmas time. We have a, a, a tree lighting ceremony, not just at Memorial Hospital, which is our, our great fundraiser, but we have one each for the, the uh, family members of, of patients who are in the hospice house and then one who was in our outpatient. So we have inpatient and outpatient, and uh, they come, and, and we give them a, a, you know, something, you know, an ornament to hang on the tree in memory of. We read all the names. It takes about two two hours, you know, one night uh, just just before Christmas, usually the first week in, in December, and it's just meaningful for them, yes. and it helps them, and it helps our staff to be able to reconnect a little bit like too. It chills so. as you say that yeah, because I know. we did yeah. that for me too. My mom once. I remember that. Yeah, it's great. We are spotlighting community hospice this week on Lighthouse Live, and we've got lots more. And we'll be right back. Deep needs, deep hurts, spreading far beyond the government's ability to help. Children, single moms and dads, the elderly, disabled, the homeless. Yet, thousands of resources that can meet those needs are sitting right now in the pews and seats of our churches. The challenge? Activating those resources and connecting them with the people in need. We have a proven solution, advancing vibrant communities. We bridge the gap. We connect people and churches with opportunities to serve the needs of their neighbors. Pure, simple, proven effective, advancing vibrant communities. What's our motivation? Jesus' command in Matthew 22:39, to love your neighbor as yourself. The church at large has a biblical mandate to serve the needs of the community. 
Advancing Vibrant Communities researches those needs, then finds volunteers with the skills and passions to meet those needs. The very first story that Mike told about ABC involves serving one of my church members whose needs I could not meet within my own community. And in that moment, God humbled me and asked me to open my heart and really listen. And as I saw the setup of the database, I realized that AVC is a wonderful partner with my own congregation. It helps us be more effective. This organization comes along and says, I'll do a lot of the groundwork and we'll discover the needs. And then those folks in your congregation who desire to be a part and who have these skills can volunteer. AVC partners with over 80 community and government agencies to help meet the needs of the city. We network with organizations like Habitat for Humanity, the American Red Cross, Salvation Army, the Area Agency on Aging, the School District, and the Police Department. Habitat and AVC is a perfect match in that we both have common missions of helping people get out of the four walls of the church, getting out into the community and helping others. AVC serves volunteers by finding ways for them to help others. AVC serves the needy through volunteer efforts with love, grace, mercy, and compassion. AVC serves churches by augmenting efforts to reach out and meet the needs of their neighbors. AVC serves businesses by helping create healthy neighborhoods, by connecting employees with opportunities to volunteer, and by providing opportunities to donate goods and services to legitimate needs in the community. Well, it works. And I, I, I believe that as in our companies, as being uh, formerly a businessman in, in, in Stanislaus County and, and uh, other counties in the state as, as, as well, that uh, our companies were only as, as successful as our weakest link. And I believe that to be the same case in our communities and in our cities, that we can only be as much as we're going to be based upon the capacity and the ability of others to participate at an increased level and quality of, of life. You know, some of us can do no donate a little money, some a little time, some one or the other or both. It really touched my heart that these strangers were interested in me and what I needed in my life. You know, it's not only hearing it, but it's seeing them, and it's being there in person and seeing the, the need that they have and hopefully being able to do something about it. I will tell you, as you know, your chief of police in the city of Modesto, we need your help in the community making a difference. Volunteer, I know we can put you to work. And I, I promise you, if you get involved, you'll feel better. You'll be happier. How can we partner with you to meet the needs of our city? We ask you to consider monthly financial support and to help recruit more volunteers. Advancing Vibrant Communities. Faith in action. Pure, simple, proven effective. Carrying out the biblical mandate to love our neighbors as ourselves. Thank you. And we're back with you on Lighthouse Live, Pastor Mike Elaine and Harold Peterson from Community Hospice. And we want to thank you for listening wherever you might be tuned in. You know, Harold, one of the interesting dynamics that I found uh, in, in doing a lot of funerals for families is there are a surprising amount of people who have had no direct experience with someone close to them dying. Very interesting. I'll, I mean, and I'll only say that to say that 
a lot of them have no idea what to do. You know, they have no experience. Uh, many, many have never been to a funeral before. And they really have no idea, you know, what, what's going to happen and this whole thing. And I, I would imagine that this is one of the great benefits of hospice to some families who may not have gone through this process before is, uh, your, as you said before, your staff, they know the signs, they know what's going to happen, uh, they can talk to them about pain management. What a tremendous way to shepherd this family through the process. Um, one of the interesting things that, that we were just talking about in the break here, who, who comes to work for hospice? I mean, what, what, what set of skills and what kind of um, heart call do they have? What was a typical volunteer, or not, not volunteer, but the typical uh, staff person uh, look like in terms of experience and, and life experience? You know, I think that, that we have found that, you know, people come to hospice as a calling. Yeah. It is something that, that uh, you know, they could go get paid more in most other places within healthcare. So it isn't always for the money. Very rarely it's for the money. Um, most nurses that I have talked to about, you know, why did you come or, or, or I've been walking down even some of the halls of the hospitals and, you know, before I retire, my last job in healthcare is going to be in hospice. Mm. Mm. Wow. So mm. it's it's almost like some people say, well, I know I have to do this because this is what I've been used to is where, you know, and we won't hire a, a new grad, a new right. new nursing grad. You know, they just don't have the life experiences right. that someone who's been in healthcare longer, you know, right. does. So how many, you know, new nursing grads have ever seen someone die? Right. You know, and it's it's a traumatic experience for a lot of people to, to go through that. We go out on every uh, death event. Someone from our staff is at every death event. And as soon as we can get there, preferably before they, they pass away, but if not, shortly after they pass away, because we realize there's, there are things that need to be done and said before the body leaves the home. And, and those are very powerful moments for us because uh, it gives closure to, to people. It, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes you know, I just wanted to give mom one last bath. Sure. Sometimes I want to, you know, sit in a room and just, you know, be with her for a little longer. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of things that happens that we allow people to do that, that in a normal systems, you know, you don't get to see. And I think there's also a generational thing, too. I mean, when I was a growing up as a kid, I wasn't always allowed to go to funerals because it might be too sad. Um, you know, <coughs> people died in the hospitals a long ways. You know, you didn't die at home because it might leave a something behind. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a lot of things that are happening. You know, I'm 62 years old and, and realizing now that, that uh, you know, things are different in, in uh, my kids' generation than there is in my generation. Because I don't, uh, you know, I don't remember, you know, if, if someone, was, you know, was dying or was sick in the home, oh, you didn't go in there. And that was kind of how I was raised in, you know, a small town. But it, it's, it's still part of, you know, and I think there's a lot of cultural things around death and dying that are much different, too. And we're still having to learn. We still have a lot of lot of issues around, you know, are you going to take my dad away if I let you come in? Well, no, we're coming to help you. You know, you're the you're the caregiver. You're the one that needs to be, you know, there with dad. We're there to provide the medical expertise or, or a little aided support or the medication that you would otherwise have to pay for or will pay for or the medical equipment that you need, the bed, the walker, the wheelchair, the oxygen concentrator that you need, we'll pay for. Those are things that we'll provide for you, you know. We're here to assist you, not to take away, not to take the place of. Well, let's talk about <clears throat> that cultural aspect. I mean, here in the Central Valley, we're a melting pot. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, you yes. go a couple blocks from here, you got uh, Hmong, Vietnamese, uh, 
African American, uh, Hispanic, and yeah, I mean, a bunch Everything, of different languages. Yes. Yeah. Um, wh- what do you do to to be sensitive to the varying kinds of cultures and and how they handle a, a death experience? We we have really worked hard at recruiting bilingual, bicultural staff. That's probably the one thing you know that that uh, you know the long-term success is going to be of, of any hospice movement is going to be you know having you know staff that can relate not only you know language-wise, language which is in, important, but right. but culturally too, sure. understanding it you know, and because we have a large Indian and Assyrian community right. now too, Absolutely. we have uh, you know. The Hispanic community, you know, I beat myself up over that one for a long time because I've been so close to so many Hispanics in, in our community, including my own daughter-in-law, um, that I didn't realize, you know, there's 36% of our community is Hispanic. But if you take the number of, of seniors out of that community, it's only 12%. And coincidentally, that's exactly the percentage of our patient population is 12%. Wow. Of so we're not doing too bad in terms of taking care of the Hispanic now. The next generation coming through, you know, is something that educationally and, and culturally we're going to have to, to be better at to be able to make sure that, that uh, you know, that they'll realize that we're an option. Um, but I think that, you know, you know, we'll see that. Sometimes there's fear of, well, you know, Uncle Jimmy's not or Juan is not legal. We're not there to pass any judgment on anybody. You know, it's, it's not our job, you know, you know, unless somebody is abusing that patient. Then it is our then it is our job. We're mandated reporters. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So if some something is not right, you know, yes, we will. But uh, we're not there to to call the INS on somebody that, that otherwise, uh, you know, was was not here legally. Harold, and an encouragement to our volunteers to volunteer with Absolutely. hospice, please. You know, we have three hundred plus volunteers that range from board members and and the foundation to the the CHI board um, to our um, family caregivers that are are there providing, uh, you know, one-on-one support for family members to our Hope Chest volunteers uh, that help us with our thrift stores. Um, You know, we depend a lot on our volunteer time, actually about 8% of our total time that is spent on on, uh, on, on patient care is through volunteers, and we couldn't couldn't make it without them. Where can they call the volunteers? Same number, 578-6300. Harold, we want to thank you so much for spending this hour with us. Wish we had two. And maybe we'll invite you back before I'll that come back. time is over. God bless you. God bless Community Hospice and all that you do. And thank you, dear friends, for listening in. Be sure and join us again. Have a great week, and God bless you. <laughs>